and a lot of people uh, just report the health benefits to that. So today we um, are going to talk about the road to recovery. We have uh, with us uh, Brian, my brother, my big brother Brian Altvader Sr., who is also the health and wellness coordinator for Wabanaki Reach. And we have, and he's Passamaquoddy from Zibayag, and we have Melody Paul, who's Mi'kmaq, and she's the author of Savage to Wellness, uh, a book about her journey, um, <clears throat> recovery journey, which we published um, a chapter in our blog maybe a couple of years ago, I think, and I think Melody's also working on a new book. So we're just going to talk to them today um, about have them share part of whatever part of their journey they want to share with us, their recovery story. And we're hoping that they'll talk a little bit about what people can expect, um, not only what uh, what is the turning point to, that somebody decides to go on this recovery journey and then what you can expect physically and emotionally when, when you do that, the days and weeks after you uh, decide to um, <clears throat> stop. And maybe we can also talk about some tips that people can have around support and community and uh, maybe talk about some brain, new brain science. <clears throat> but before we uh, welcome our guests, Maria is going to do a land appreciation for us. Thank you, Esther. I just wanted to take a moment to round us uh, in this conversation and to acknowledge the land beneath our feet. Wabanaki, the land of the first light, the dawn land, land that has known Wabanaki ancestors, the tallest trees, and the oldest rivers, land that has known peace and conflict, land that has nourished us and sustained us since time immemorial. We acknowledge the indigenous peoples of this land, Wabanaki, the Passamaquoddy, Penobscot, Micmac, Maliseet, and Abenaki, and we give thanks to your stewardship and resilience. We are broadcasting from WEIU Studio in Blue Hill, Alamusic, Wabanaki. Chiwile one Maria. So today on Dawnland Signals, we are talking about the road to recovery, and we have members of the Wabanaki community here. Uh, Brian Altavator Sr., Passamaquoddy, and Melody Paul, who's Micmac. And I'd like to, um, ladies first, start with Melody. Melody, would you like to introduce yourself and uh, share your story with us? Hi, my name is Melody, um, and I'm I'm a Micmac from a reservation in Nova, Nova Scotia, and I've been in Maine for over a little over 20 years. and um, I'm in recovery today. Um, I have almost four years clean and sober, but my road to recovery, um, it was, it wasn't, it was hard at first to find what I needed to find and to, till I got the support I needed from community. Um, I didn't realize that there was such a good recovery community up here in the Bangor Brewer area. Um, there's a lot of resources around here, and it's just I'm very grateful. Thank you, Melody. Also, I'm grateful that you're here too, and congratulations, four years. That's that's wonderful, wonderful news. Thank you, I Esther. See, I love following you on Facebook and all of the the wonderful meditations and affirmations you share. Um, I think they they really help a lot of people. Thank you. Brian, do you want to introduce yourself and share a little bit about your story? Sure. Um, Brian Altvader Sr. I'm from Sibayag, uh, uh, Pleasant Point uh, in down east Maine. Um, father of three. Uh, I have eight grandchildren. Uh, my wife and I have been married for 45 years last month. <laughs> And uh, what's odd is uh, the very day that I, um, not the very, same day, different year, six years after um, we got married, I decided to quit drinking. And there's a saying in one of the 12-step programs that says, uh, I didn't quit, I surrendered. And to me, that is so important because 
Um, my drug of choice was alcohol. And once I realized that I had a problem and my life was spiraling out of control, um, it took a lot of pain and it took a lot of drunks and a lot of times to get in fights and trouble and stuff like that for me to realize that um, I had no control of alcohol. And it had control over me and my whole life revolved around alcohol. And when I was younger, it was always like, nobody's going to tell me what to do. If I want to drink, I'm going to drink and I'm going to do what I want to do. But the, the common thread that uh, happened during these times was the fact that every time something really bad happened in my life, I was drinking. And then I says, oh, I could quit. You watch, I could quit. So I wouldn't drink for three, four months. And every time I started back up again, it got worse. It got worse. And it was like uh, I never stopped. I stopped for, for three, four months. But it was like um, I picked up where, right where I left off. And um, they say that the disease keeps progressing, even if you uh, stop using. So you have to work on yourself. So one night, um, it was New Year's Eve, I was hungover, I was with a friend of mine, and every place we went, he got kicked out or I got kicked out. And the last home we went to, there was a New Year's Eve party, and they asked him to leave. I said, you know, why are you asking him to leave? That's my buddy. They said, he needs to leave. I said, okay. I said, if he goes, I'm going. And my booze is going. <laughs> so we left. And so we're standing up on top of the hill. It, it has snowed a little. It was a heavy, wet snow. I'll never forget the night. And it was probably good two inches of heavy, wet snow on, on the cars and on the ground. And we're standing there. And I says, you know, what are we doing with our lives? I said, we're, the only thing we're doing is killing ourselves. He said, there's nothing else to do around here. So I gave him my beer. I had a bag of beer. I said, here, I'm all done. He looked at me like, yeah, sure. And I left. Went home. Told the baby, I says, listen. I says, um, you guys can go home. And that night, because it was New Year's Eve, I had champagne in the fridge. And I would, took it outside and I busted it. And um, my wife was in eSport at a dance. So um, I wanted somebody to talk to. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I was reaching uh, reaching for help. And I called my mom, and um, she wasn't home. Called my aunt. She came over, and we talked for about three and a half hours. And that was the very first time I had ever told anyone that I had a problem with alcohol. That was the first time I reached out for help. And, but what was weird is, you know, they tell you that there's certain steps you should take when you get into the program. You get a sponsor, you go to meetings, uh, you work on the, you know, the steps that they show you to work on. And I did none of that. You share. I didn't share at meetings. When I went to meetings, I always um, was the last one in the meeting and the first one off the door. <laughs> I didn't do any service. So um, I didn't go to counseling. I didn't go to de detox, rehab, nothing. I did everything that you weren't supposed to do. But the thing that I did do right was I reached out for help. And for the first year, I was just basically dry. I was miserable, and I said, geez, I sobered up for this. I said, this isn't much fun. And um, after that year, I started working on things. And um, it took me several years to admit that I was an alcoholic, and it took me longer still to accept it. And but when I accepted it, it was like, 
Well, first off, when I um, when I admitted it, it was like this big weight came off my shoulders. And when I accepted it and just did things um, that would turn my life around, things started to make sense and fall into place. Um, what was tough was my drinking buddies kept calling me <laughs> and saying, hey, let's go out and drink. Some of them were relatives, some weren't. And, you know, that was tough because my best friend was a bottle and I didn't have the bottle anymore. And all my, I didn't have any friends because um, they were all using and there was no meetings around here. And there was virtually nobody on the reservation that was in the program except for one of my aunts. And we actually started a, a meeting down here at that time. And we got pretty good attendance and stuff like that. <clears throat> but when I first stopped, it was like, well, I was used to drinking all that alcohol. What am I going to drink now? So I was drinking soda. <laughs> I was drinking an awful lot of soda. And then I was talking to this lady, and she'd been in the program a while. She says, well, better you drink coffee or soda than alcohol. <laughs> and so... Um, anyway, and the first two weeks, all I did was sleep. I was afraid of getting the DTs, so I left the light on by my bed for two weeks. And I finally started sleeping, and it was like I must have been sleeping 14 hours a day. And then I said, geez, I got to do something else. So I started exercising and doing all these other things. My body was fit but my mind was still wet. And so I had to change things, um, you know, the way I process things. And, and I tell people, it's, it's like, you're like a computer. Whatever you feed in that computer is what you're going to get as an end result. And so, um, and I also tell people, it doesn't matter the length of time um, you've used. And I want to congratulate uh, Melody on her four years what matters is they say you need a, a spiritual awakening. To me, you just you need more than that. You need um, like medical intervention. It doesn't matter if you're little, doesn't matter if you're middle aged, old, whatever. Without that medical intervention, you'll die. And the mm -hmm. disease of alcohol will kill you. So you need to do something different that's going to save your life. And so after a few years of being sober um, and, and working on different things, I eventually got into counseling and uh, some feelings groups and uh, a lot of 12-step groups. And uh, I went to uh, adult children of alcoholics um, inpatient for a week or so. And I did all these different things. Um, so... You know, I realized that, you know, I have to do something in, in addition to, you know, putting the plug in the jug, not drinking, sharing, and helping other people and doing service. And so I bumped into this um, Big Mac gentleman, and um, it was in, I think we were in Big Cove, but he was actually from Shiverdaggity, Nova Scotia. And he was really spiritual and he was really gifted when it came to uh, ceremonies and, and all these other things. And I said, you know what? I want to get into sweat lodge ceremonies and, and a lot of the other ceremonies that our people have been doing for thousands of years. And it was like that just like opened the door for me big time. And then I says, this is my, one of my purpose in life is to, um, become a sweat lodge keeper and, and do all these other things because it runs parallel to being in recovery. You know, right. yeah. no drugs, no alcohol. Um, you, you, you receive a spirit name in our language. And, you know, so I tell people admitting I was alcoholic was tough. Accepting I was an alcoholic was tougher. But what is tougher still 
is keeping in mind where I came from and I have to keep working on myself. You know, it's like if you're a uh, if you're a runner or if you have a nice vehicle, if you don't upkeep it, it starts falling apart. And exactly. If you, if you don't stay in shape, you get mm-hmm. out of shape. And the older you get, the quicker <laughs> you get out of shape. Yeah, and, and harder so, it is to stay in shape, right? Exactly. And so um, it's hard maintaining now, you know. And and um, nowadays it's almost like because I've got a number of years in in, uh, in uh, recovery, I can't go to a meeting and sit down and just listen. People are always calling on me. And, and, and they say people new in the program are like babies of pigeons. They always shit on you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they want, they want, uh, excuse me, they, you know, they, um, they want you to babysit them and take care of them. But the program doesn't, you know, for me, it doesn't work like that. You have to, um, you have to put the work in yourself, you know, um, I picked up that phone and called my aunt and, um, (laughs) okay, I guess we'd take a break here. Well, yeah. Thank you, Brian. You're listening to Dawnland Signals on WERU. I'm your co-host, Esther Ann, along with Maria Girard. Dawnland Signals is a monthly talk show where we hold space for critical conversations of truth, healing, and change. Today, we're talking about the road to recovery with Melody Paul, Micmac, and Brian Altivator Sr., Passive Party. And Brian was just <clears throat> sharing um, all of the the things that need to happen for somebody to have a successful um, transition into the road of recovery. Is there anything you'd like to share more about what brought you to that point or what happened when you got to that point, Melody, where you decided to get on this road of recovery? Yeah, I could share a little bit. Um, So I just, I don't know, I, I got in trouble with the law because I was doing a lot of stuff I shouldn't be doing. I was experimenting with drugs for the first time and um, I ended up landing in jail and then prison. And then um, that's when I started to go to meetings and started to kind of look at myself in the mirror and really look at myself and say, like, what am I doing? (laughs) What am I doing? Why is my life such a mess right now? And I need some, I need to change some things when I get out of here. And so I started writing a lot and I started meditating and going to groups that the prison offers. They have meetings in there and um, they have groups that you can attend and um self-help groups that, you know, I attended almost every group that they had or offered just to keep myself busy. And when I got out of jail, I ended up having a relapse and I drank for about two weeks. I was on the street in Bangor and I had nowhere to go. I honestly had nowhere to go. I walked for like days because I just had nowhere to go, nothing to do. It was just like a lost soul walking around like nothing. And it was, it wasn't good. It wasn't a good feeling. And it was a cycle like I needed to break out of. And instead of going and get myself to a meeting, I went downtown looking for somebody that was either drinking or wanted to party or something. And I went down that road and I ended up getting a charge for drinking in public. And then I went, they put me in PCJ and, and when I was in PCJ, as I was in there locked up, and um, I noticed that um, that's when I realized that I needed to change some things. Um, I needed to change where I was going in my life. Like, and honestly, I realized then that um, I needed to either go to a program or just. Um, stop drinking and go to meetings. So when I got out of jail, I, um, it was about an hour. I sat there in the PCJ holding area. That's when I was like, I, I, 
I kind of came to a realization of like tired, tired of drinking, tired of making bad choices, tired of lying, tired of being manipulative. Just all of that was just, I was just over it and I wanted something different. So when I got out of jail, I said to myself, I'm going to go to a meeting. I'm going to see what this is all about. I'm going to go to a meeting. I'm going to surrender myself. I'm tired. So the first meeting I went to was a woman's meeting. And I don't know if I'm allowed to say it was a 12 step meeting anyways. And I went there. And so I just felt like I fit in with them, the stories that they shared. And I felt welcomed and, um, So I did the 90 meetings in 90 days, and um, I got a sponsor. Um, I started to, in those 90 days, the first 30 days, I avoided people that I used to know. I changed contact people that I drank with. If I met them on the street, I told them I'm sober and I'm in recovery now, you know, as a defense kind of mechanism, just to kind of, you know, I just automatically would say, no, I'm sober now. I I don't party. Sorry. And I'm actually going to a meeting. (laughs) So like any chance I got anybody I bumped into, I would tell them, no, I'm doing good. And I'm working the program, a program, and I'm just trying my best. I started working when I started working and all I did was work, go to meetings meet with my sponsor and, um, go to the gym. So I, and I pretty much gave myself my own curfew after the meet. And I went home to an apartment that I got and I'd locked the door and I was living in a building in Bangor. That was really, really rough. A lot of drug activity in the building, a lot of, um, traffic, you know, partying. And that's why I locked my door when I got home. And everybody, after a few months, everybody knew that I was sober in the building. So they kept their distance. They were just, you know, they respected it. And um, so in the first year, um, I just stayed busy and I did everything my sponsor told me to do, which is go to meetings, do service work. So I got a job. I got a volunteer position at the Bangor Area Recovery Network. I went there every Wednesday for four hours to volunteer. I was didn't miss. Um, and I did that for a whole year. I went to the, the meetings, Will Bridey, um, and I just stayed with it. And the, as time went by, everything got better. Like, I started having visits with my son. Um, I was able to get stable housing. I got a vehicle. And then um, I was able to publish my book. And after that, I was able to, that's when COVID hit. And But still, I remained sober and did Zoom meetings. And I stayed close to all my recovery friends in the Bangor Brewer area. And, um, I just, uh, I try my best to, to be on the right path and like being in recovery today has brought, brought, brought me a lot of good things in my life. Um, I'm, I was able to like get full custody of my son. I've been able to hold down a job for two years now. I, um, like I said, I published my book, Savage to Wellness, and I'm working, currently working on book number two. That's halfway done, and I'm hoping it'll be ready by at least July or August. And, um, maybe I'll come on the show and talk to you guys about it. (laughs) Um, And for two years now, I've been facilitating a, um, Will Bridey meeting at the barn, um, for Native American people that are in recovery. Can you say what the barn is? uh, Bangor Area Recovery Network is um, a place where if anybody in the Bangor Brewer or surrounding areas needs or wants support, they offer recovery coaching. They offer um, classes there. Um, 
if you just walk in there and you just need somebody to talk to, somebody there will talk to you. Um, they have meetings, a few meetings a day. I think early ones, afternoon and six o'clock. Um, and I think pretty much covers, they have, they have NAAA, well, variety, um, food addiction, all, it, they cover pretty much all the meetings that any type of support you need, they cover. So, um, they're a really good organization and, um, I'm grateful that they're, they're around. Um, so I was able to do my Wilbriety there. The Wilbriety meetings are on Thursdays, every Thursday, 4.30 to 5.30. And, um, everybody is welcome that's struggling with anything. And, um, yeah, I'm just, I'm happy today and I, I'm happy because I, I, I'm, Norm, I'm happy without substance or, or alcohol or, you know, the crazy life I used to live. I'm, I'm, I'm very happy naturally <laughs> and I don't have to rely on anything. Maybe exercise and a little bit, um, helps me get a little bit more that high that people get, but that's, that's about it. I'm pretty straight, like straight laced and I'm just trying to, um, I'm trying to get by this life the way I'm living for a while. Cause I just, I don't want to go back out and use, I've lost so many friends, mm-hmm. um, this past year from overdosing and, um, because they went back out and that that's the most dangerous part is if you're sober for a while and then you go back out, you don't know, you, they don't, it's always the mixture is too strong or, or something out there is dangerous that's on the street and mm-hmm. they, they're unfamiliar with it and, and that happens and it's, it's been rough. So very grateful that we have a community of supports here that like where we can go to meetings and I go to counseling regularly for, um, go to counseling and I just, uh, I see my sponsor. I even went to a meeting this morning. So I'm like, I'm pumped. I'm doing okay. <laughs> Thank you. I love, I love that. Just hearing you say, you know, I'm real happy. It makes me smile just to hear that. So that's wonderful. There was, um, you know, a few things that were um, standing out for me. My ears were really hearing right off the bat, uh, Melanie, when you spoke about community support and um, both you and Brian, you know, talked about um, the sense of surrendering. And Brian, in your story, it, just the way you were describing it, you know, standing up on that hill and the wet, heavy snow falling, like um, you could just imagine it almost feels prophetic that you were standing up on that hill and making that that decision to, to turn things around and, and reaching out to your mother and your aunt. But um, I was wondering, uh, Melody started talking about uh, areas of community support and um, before Brian, you were talking about sort of the spiritual connection to recovery and, I just wanted to invite you back into the conversation to say if you wanted to continue to share more about that, um, you know, especially as a as a community support. Yeah, okay, but I'm going to go back just a little little ways. When I was a kid, um, every event at the community, weddings, elections, you name it, get-togethers, people were drinking like crazy. And... Um, I did a, a survey way back, like in um, 88, 89, and I did uh, stats from the early 1900s right up into that current year, whatever it was, we'll say 88. And I was shocked as to how many of our community members died of um, alcoholism, uh, alcohol-related uh, deaths. You know, from accidents, uh, cirrhosis of the livers, uh, so, you know, some people even OD'd. So that that was kind of the um, normal in the community. And when I started working for the health center, we tried to turn things around. 
we were successful. A bunch of us were success, successful in having all of the um, buildings, you know, whether it was a BIA building, IHS building, uh, the school building, uh, smoke-free. Uh, we were probably the most hated um, group, a committee on the reservation there for a number of years. And uh, people used to smoke right in their offices, right in the staff lounge and everything. And uh, we made it, we made it, you know, smoke-free. And then we started trying to do some of the things uh, to help people. So we uh, came up with the Employees Assistance Program. And a lot of that had to, had to do with, um, you know, people who had issues with uh, either pain meds or alcohol or whatever, because we realized that, um, you know, the punitive system of um, putting people in jail because they're addicts, that, that doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. That if an employee isn't coming to work because of, um, we'll say, drinking, you need to get them help. And then you need to, um, say, get them on the road to recovery. And their family needs help, too. You know, their family needs help. And that's probably the most important thing is getting support from your family once you start stop drinking, you know, or whatever you're doing, um, the drug of your choice. And it's a lonely road. It's a lonely road because, um, you know, there was – you're standing by yourself a lot of times, you know, and, you know, it's, it's, it's nice when you have a lot of groups and you have a lot of meetings. We didn't have that down here. I mean, I had to either go to Machias once a week, a callus to go to a meeting. We didn't have any at Pleasant Point. And, you know, Melody said something key. It's like, you know, I've got another relapse in me, but do I have another recovery in me? You know, that scares me. I don't know. I don't know. Um, because I've seen a lot of people go out, never come back. I've sat next to people that um, are no longer here because of uh, alcoholism or drugs. So, um, you know, that that's scary. And, and uh the younger you drink, the quicker your disease progresses. And, um, you know, you don't see many 80-year-olds that are, you know, that are uh, substance abusers unless they started late in life. But you need that family support. You need that community support. And luckily, back in uh, the early 90s, the tribe and the federal, uh, the tribe and the federal government was supportive in you know, addressing these issues. And we used to have community-wide workshops and we'd have the different heads of departments come to the training and stuff. And and so when we had this community-wide workshop, we were prepared for people to come forth and say, we need help. As a matter of fact, there were some people at that conference who went straight from that meeting right into the hospital. You know, and, um, you know, hopefully, um, and we are turning things around, you know, gradually. But, you know, I might have drank for years be before I got addicted myself. I think I was born an alcoholic, and all I had to do was prove it by taking that first drink. You know, they say um, one's too many and a thousand isn't enough. But. I hear stories of people saying that they go out and they take drugs and the very first time they take drugs, they're hooked. You know, and, and that's that's scary. I mean, uh, look at the deaths we've had in the communities, uh, you know, um, the native communities uh, because of opioids. You know, there, there are some deadly drugs out there that they're mixing, you know, fentanyl and all this other stuff. And, you know, before I, you know, um, get done, I want to say that um, you have to want to stop drinking. You want to have to stop using. And, and a lot of people out there don't know how to stop, you know. And I think it's up to people that um, have stopped to help them in any way they can. Um, 
you know, it's a hard, it, it's, I haven't met anybody that has said that's all they want to do is drug and drink. They don't know how to stop. You know, they, they, it's a daily struggle to do what they do. And that's so, so unhappy and stuff. So, you know, you could, you can do things to turn your life away around for, for your family or whomever, but ultimately you have to want it. You got to have that desire deep inside you to turn your life around. And, um, there's not too many people that uh, probably have, uh, if I compared my life today compared to what it was that day I was standing on top of the hill, um, I've done a 180. I've done a 180. And people try to push my buttons. They said, oh, you used to do this. <laughs> you, you were drunk. You did all these other things. And I just diffuse it by saying, yeah, you're right. Because, you know, you have to be honest with where you're at. And that's why you have to continually take an inventory of yourself um, to make sure that you're heading in the right direction. You know, Brian, what you said about um, earlier about you need the medical response, too. I, I've often thought I've often um, thought about what a shame it is that we have such a moral response to a medical issue like addiction. Like you said, they can't stop. And it's, you know, I, I, I tried to make a point once to somebody and I said, can, imagine if we told people with diabetes or cancer, it's all your fault, just stop doing what you're doing and didn't give them medicine or didn't give them any support or, you know, it, all of that, it would be, we wouldn't do that. It's horrible. And that's what we do to people with uh, addiction. <clears throat> and I wanted to just, <clears throat> I had talked about doing a little bit of research and I, on the Re- Recovery Re- Research Institute website, um, there been some. There's some good news. <laughs> Studies show improvement or even complete recovery um, of the brain in certain performance um, measurements, like short-term memory, long-term memory, and verbal IQ. So, <clears throat> you know, with the proper medical attention, you know, the brain and the body will start to repair itself. Um, it's really amazing what the body can do. Esther, before you uh, get into your next question, uh, I just wanted to do the quick station uh, identification. You are listening to John Land Signals on WERU-FM. I'm your co-host, Maria Gerard, along with Esther Ann. John Land Signals is a monthly talk show where we hold space for critical conversations of truth healing and change. And today we're talking about the road to recovery with Melody Paul Hickback and Brian Altavated Sr. Pasmaquati. And Esther, you were talking um, sort of about the, the medical, from the, a medical lens in addiction. Yeah, just talking about the how, how once people abstain, um, that the body can really repair itself. And I was also thinking about um, both of you, I think, said that it's a the road to recovery is a lonely road and it's a hard road. And you know, in my experience, um, as a family member, um, it's really hard. It, that whole concept of de- you need to detach so you're not enabling them to use, but when they stop, you really need to support them. And it's it can be really hard for families that have that have felt the brunt of the the pain from the addiction right they've been people you know steal from you lie to you you know all of these things and it, it can be really hard so i'm wondering if either of you um have any like good points for advice for family members who are trying to help somebody who is suffering from addiction go ahead melody i see you smiling <laughs> Um, all I could say is the best thing to do is be patient and tolerant of them. And, you know, they're not in a place. It's This is the way I feel about it a lot of times. When somebody's doing drugs or drinking, It's that's not the real person. It's their mind is not there. The 
it's it's them embodied, but in mind, it's not them. It's the drugs and the alcohol has has got them away. Their spirit's broken, and the best thing to do is just if you want to help them or encourage them, just um, don't enable them by giving them money or, but just try to get them in like support services or just listening. I think just even listening to them talk and, uh, and, and try to help them to, you know, just talking to them and get the help that they need via counseling or meetings or, or even sometimes, you know, they have to be in a certain program to stop using drugs um, or alcohol. It's just, it's, um, it's a very sticky um, and challenging situation, I really do have to say. Um, especially if they're not ready, it's going to be even harder. Just give it a little time and distance yourself, but don't distance yourself too much. Um, showing them that you do care and that you miss them and you want the old person back and not this, this person that they're, you know, the, the person that they've become, um, and try to pull them back without, um, without too much, uh, harsh words, I guess, <laughs> but, um, yeah. rec- recently, like- go ahead. I'm sorry. Recently, um, yeah, I have had to do that with my own son. He, uh, he, I noticed he was out partying and stuff and, you know, he, we didn't know what to do with him. He was out of control this summer. And, you know, I almost, I just recently honestly went through it as a mom <laughs> and it was hard. And now he's come back kind of, and I talked to him and I told him, you know, I like, so much things you could do versus that road. And he's kind of slowly like he's, he's doing good today versus back in the summertime. We got him into counseling. We're in family counseling and it's going really well. And he, he's doing very good now. And it just there's a good understanding. And so I didn't, I almost was at the edge, but I did not push him away because I don't want to, I don't want to push him away. He's my son. So just don't give up on your um, relatives because they might be all that you they, they got. Like you're, you might be the only one that they can talk to. So mm-hmm. just. That's it seems it. like that, that there's a real fear of being judged too, huh? <clears throat> Anything you want to add, Brian? Well, I just want to say that. You know, you need to support the person who's struggling and whether it's taking them to counseling or a meeting and, you know, just because they've stopped doesn't mean they're okay. A lot of people make the mistake of not inviting them to family get togethers. They're afraid it might trigger something and things like that. So you have to keep them um, involved and stuff. You know, the other thing is, you know, when somebody is, you know, been using for many, many years, um, emotionally, their growth has been stunted, you know? And so they basically have to learn to uh, live and cope while being responsible for everything they've done. So, you know, part of the thing I've had to do over, and I'm still doing it to this day, is if I've hurt or harm people, you know, you apologize to them except if it's going to cause more trouble or harm than you don't at that point. But um, the other thing is, you know, you take a bunch of people that are um, sobering up, only been sober for a little while, you figure how can a bunch of sick people get better? But they make each other better because they've got a roadmap to do that. And over the years, it's been proven to be successful. So they, like I said, they need a spiritual awakening and whatever that may be to that individual, you know, God, the higher power, the creator, the group, whatever nature, whatever they deem their higher power, they they call upon that. And then they turn things over because, you know, we've been at the helm for many years and we've gone 
we've gone, um, you know, um, into wrecks far too often. So you use a roadmap that's uh, successful, and that can't be, you can't have a successful um, recovery without a higher power. And so um, as a person does better, you'll see them taking uh, more responsibility and becoming a whole person again. And, um, you know, it's really nice to um, go to an anniversary of somebody who's really working that program uh, to the best of their ability. It's like a road race. You know, if somebody completes a race, that's the success of the whole thing. You don't think about what place they came in because they're doing the race the best of their ability. So, you again, it's acceptance. You have to accept where they're at. And you, you know, and probably to me the most important thing about family members, you need to tell them that you love them and that you care for them, and um, you you want them to see good. You want them to do good, and you want to make sure that uh, they know that. You know, you can't just say, "Well, I'm, I went to his anniversary." You know, um, what more does he want? You know, you got to tell him. You know how much you care for him, and that. Uh, how proud you are that uh, they've turned their lives around. Thank you. I um, I read this. I don't know who wrote it, but I read something once talking about the origin of the word um, about alcohol and how it's called spirits for a reason because it actually can take over your spirit. So I, I thought of that when both of you mentioned um, the the need to have a strong connection to spirit or a spiritual awakening to be able to um, have the strength to be on this road to recovery. So it, it just struck me as interesting. <clears throat> so we have about, um, about nine, ten minutes left. And I know that we've asked you, you know, a few different questions um, along the way, but I'm just wondering if, there is um, any question that um, we haven't asked that you were hoping we would ask or something, um, you know, that you really want to share in these last few minutes that we have together. Either one can hop, jump in. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, you're sharing your, your wisdom on this topic area, you know, the road to recovery, and um, there's so many gems that have um, jumped out for me. And, um, you know, Melody, when you said their spirit is broken and, you know, you let people know that you miss them and want the old person back and, you know, not to give up on people. Don't give up on your relatives. Those are, like, really powerful for me that stood out. Brian, I know you must have something more you would like to add. <laughs> Well, you know me, I could talk all day and all night. <laughs> um, yeah, just to touch on that, that thing of alcohol having its own spirit, and so does other drugs. Um, you know, one of the criteria that we have, say, if you're going into sweat lodge ceremony, is that you not use drugs or alcohol for four days and four nights. You know, it's, it's like it takes that long just to kind of um, leave that, have that spirit of alcohol leave you. And, um, you know, they they told us don't make any major decisions the first year of, um, of sobering up, you know, because uh, most people that do, not most, but some people that do, you in increase the risk of relapsing. And then they tell you, you know, if you're going to sponsor someone, you should be sober for a minimum of two years. And then if you're going to get into the counseling field, um, it should be five years. You know, and I can tell you, you know, you know, sometimes you see someone, they say that person's kind of like walking around in a fog. That's how it is when you first stop. <laughs> I mean, you know, um, you, you, with me, I've had so many years of uh, drinking that 
when I went to a store after I stopped, I was walking up to the beer cooler, you know, and and doing things that you know you again you were programmed to do. You know, you go to you go to the package store and you go to the beer store because you've done it thousands of times. And then you know, I'd find myself, well, why am I standing in front of the beer cooler? I don't <laughs> I don't drink anymore. And um, so it, you have to recondition yourself, you know, and, and that's not easy. And, you know, I can say today, I don't do drugs, alcohol, drink, or smoke. Um, you know, just about everything you touch nowadays is bad for you. Soda is bad for you. Diet soda is bad for you. Coffee is bad for you. You know, um, I do drink decaf now. And, uh, but it's like, I think that the question is, you know, moderation. You've got to make sure that, you know, whatever you're doing, you don't do it in excess, you know, like I did with uh, drinking. But, um, you know, Melody says she's happy. I've never been happier in my life. I mean, my, my wife and I just three years ago adopted uh, our grandson. Now he's our son. You know, um, he's 18 years old. And he's been with us for 18 years. And I'm like, tomorrow he has to have his wisdom teeth out. He wants me to be there with him, you know. And like most kids don't want their parents with them and grandparents with them. If you're chaperoning or participating in a outing with them, him, he makes sure he makes sure I'm there, you know, which which is really nice. And um you know, he told me one day, he said, Dada, all my grandchildren call me Dada. He said, Dada, he says, I want to do a sweat lodge. He said, just you and I. I said, all right. So we did one. So he said, bring it on. I said, what? He said, bring it on. He says, get them rocks hot and bring in as many as you want. So the third round, he said, that is really, really, really hot in here. I said, you're the one that said, bring it on. So the spirits are bringing it on. So you got to be careful what you ask for. I love that story. <laughs> Melody, any last uh, words of wisdom you'd like to share with us? Or maybe tell us about uh, what you got going on with your second book. And we have about um, four more minutes together. Well, I just wanted to say if anybody's out there listening and struggling to stop using or stop drinking or stop doing whatever you're doing, don't be afraid to reach out to your community supports because these people will help you. They won't judge you and they'll be there for you in the beginning to whenever. They're just awesome. They're like little angels because when you're having a hard time trying to quit, and you, you might not have family, so you, you're even more not sure. Just reach out to those people because this, the state of Maine, the state of Maine has plenty of places. I know our area has a Bangor area recovery network. Machias has a place. Portland has a recovery center. I'm pretty sure there's recovery centers in all. Aroostook County has a couple, I think. Um, and just don't be afraid to, like, make that first step or just to, you know, even though it's going to be hard, it's it's going to take a lot of work. And that's what it is, too. People think it's easy when you first quit drinking or drugging that you just have to go to meetings and, and talk. But it's it's really you have to work. They have to work on themselves. It's it's requires a lot of work and listening listen for the first 90 days when you're at a meeting because that will help you a lot and i just want to say esther and maria and brian thank you all and um thank you for having me absolutely i'm so glad you could you could make it um okay so I think that um, brings us to where we need to start rounding up uh, our time together. It flies right by as always. And so I just wanted to close by saying thank you to our listeners for joining us on John Land Signals, to Willie Winnie, to our very special guest, Brian 
Altavena Sr. and Melanie Paul. And thank you to volunteer technician Jeffrey Hodgkiss for his ongoing assistance and support. Be sure to join us next month on February 17th and every third Thursday of the month for more Dawnland Signals and more conversations of truth, healing, and change. Stay tuned here on WERU-FM for next wonderful programming. Tapchich. Tapchich gnomio. Minach gnomio. You're listening to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and on the web at WERU.org. For the Daily Yonder and Public News Service, this is the news from rural America. Eighty-five years ago, Congress changed life for millions of Americans by passing the Rural Electrification Act. Now, funds to expand access to high-speed Internet from the American Rescue Act could be equally transformative. Certainly the pandemic really threw into sharp relief the existing digital divide. Sean Gonsalves with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance says the funds are sparking solutions like public-private partnerships in New Hampshire to more regional approaches in Vermont. In rural New England, monopoly providers have no incentive to improve access. For a lot of people, it made it clear that high-speed internet connectivity wasn't a luxury. It's a must-have. It's not a nice-to-have. One fearless family in Lander, Wyoming, has faced down all of the big three grocery chains. Michelle Motherway is the third-generation owner of Mr. D's Food Center. After graduating college, she went home when a national grocery chain used illegal tactics to try to put her mother out of business. They ran a predatory pricing grand opening ad for 18 months until we turned them into the state. The legal limit is three months. Mr. D's provides 77 jobs in Lander. Nationwide, an estimated two-thirds of every local dollar spent stays within the community. Community spirit and hard work has landed Humboldt, Kansas, population 2000, on this year's New York Times list of 52 places to travel. They've been working to restore commercial properties to boost the economy. It's not just that these businesses were struggling to be successful. It's like the roof was leaking. So a lot of these buildings were just in really ramshackle shape. Paul Clotier co-founded the group A Boulder Humboldt six years ago. Now Humboldt has a luxury weekend getaway destination, a cocktail bar, and a shaved ice parlor where local students work. There's just something interesting about small town life, possibility, a sense of opportunity that there's some other way to live and work. Some native communities are coming together to overcome voting barriers they thought were obstacles of the past. It's going to take consistency participation from everybody that's already registered and it's going to take new people coming in to the equation. Keaton Sunchild with a nonpartisan voting organization Western Native Voice says until the Voting Rights Act of 1965 indigenous people faced Jim Crow style barriers similar to those aimed at black Americans like poll taxes and literacy tests. They're not as overt as they were in the beginning but there's certainly still some challenges to getting folks in ballot box. After more Native participation in the past two elections, Montana's GOP-led legislature has curtailed same-day voter registration used by Native Americans more than other groups. We can make a difference, and we will make a difference, but we need all of us, and it's going to be a team effort. For the Yonder Report and Public News Service, I'm Roz Brown. For more rural stories, visit dailyyonder.com. Welcome to Talk World Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. This week on Talk World Radio, we are talking about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., media, activism, and related topics with Jared A. Ball, who is a professor of communication and Africana studies at Morgan State University in Baltimore, Maryland, and the author of the Myth and Propaganda of Black Buying Power. Ball is also host of the podcast, I Mix What I Like, co-founder of Black Power Media, which can be found at blackpowermedia.org. And his decades of journalism, media, writing, and political work can be found at imixwhatilike.org. Jared Ball, welcome to Talk World Radio. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Martin Luther King Jr. holiday it seems like such an incredibly strange thing if you're familiar with any of the work of the government 
that made it a holiday. Uh, but <laughs> it seems to make sense to people because they have some very strange idea of who Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was, don't they? Yeah, there's been a, a, a tremendous amount of work put into rebranding him as somebody who would who would have been acceptable to the state that had, uh, depending on who you listen to, everything to do with uh, both his treatment while he was alive, his assassination, the rebranding of him post uh, 